Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It is Thursday, June 22nd. There's a lot of reasons the Hollywood writers are on strike, but if you pan back, back, back and take a big picture view of what's going on, the writers' issues stem in many ways from the consolidation of power in entertainment. A few companies in streaming and the vertical integration of those companies, meaning they control production and distribution of content, and all the changes that that power has enabled. It might surprise some younger listeners, but there was a time not that long ago where the outlets that aired TV shows weren't allowed to own those shows. It was called the Financial Interest in Syndication Rules, or FinCEN, which were enacted in 1970, and they enabled some of the greatest wealth creation in the history of Hollywood. Norman Lear, Aaron Spelling. Tom Werner got so rich off the Cosby Show and Roseanne that he bought the Boston Red Sox. The Cosby Show wasn't owned by NBC. Neither was Seinfeld. So the true value creation wasn't captured by the network beyond the ads that they sold. Both the FinCEN rules and on the film side, the Paramount decrees, which prevented the movie studios from owning the theaters that showed their movies, were designed to eliminate conflicts of interest by splitting production from distribution. Studios were incentivized to create the highest quality work, and if they didn't, distributors could choose to sell someone else's movies or shows. There were many different markets for TV, primetime, syndication, foreign, all sold separately and benefiting the producer of the show. But that all changed thanks to deregulation. The movie theater industry consolidated in the 90s and 2000s, creating a handful of multiplex chains that played all the same movies. FinCEN was repealed by the Clinton administration, so the studios pretty quickly became vertically integrated. They now own most of what they air. And the result? Some great shows and top creators can still get very rich in this business, but the balance of power has definitely shifted. These days, when I see a bad and barely popular show getting picked up for another season, it's always a show that the outlet also owns. And that's just TV. The streaming ecosystem is even more consolidated because outlets like Netflix are global. They're self-contained distribution and, in most cases, production companies that enter the market, overpaid to acquire market share, and now own that content and exploit it across all their vertically integrated platforms. Often, there's no real market value to anything. That's bad for creators, obviously, but it's also bad for the overall business, according to some legal scholars and antitrust advocates, especially at a time when nobody except maybe Netflix can figure out how to make money in streaming. Today, I've got one of those advocates on the show. He's Matt Stoller, who, in addition to being the brother of filmmaker Nick Stoller, who's done a bunch of comedies, he's done Forgetting Sarah Marshall, he did Neighbors. Matt is a director of research at the American Economics Liberties Project, a nonprofit with the mission to shine a light on monopoly power and its dangers to democracy. He's been a policy advisor in both the U.S. House and Senate on financial services issues. 
He wrote a book called Goliath about monopoly power. And he also wrote a recent article called It's Time to Break Up Hollywood. He wants congressional hearings and a new government push to deconsolidate the studio streamers. Is that what's needed to rescue the entertainment business? Does it even need rescuing or should there be further consolidation? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Matt Stoller. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to get into this, and I want to start with a comment that you have in your piece that I just read called Time to Break Up Hollywood, which is fascinating. And it's something that I've been thinking about a long time, because when I talk to agents, lawyers, managers on the front lines of deal making in the studio system, they often complain about leverage and the fact that these companies have become vertically integrated, meaning they own production and distribution. They want to buy from their own affiliated entities. They want to keep increasingly the content that they make within their own ecosystem to exploit it through their own channels, keeping the economics in-house and not putting it out on the open market. And that trickles down to a very difficult negotiation for these talent representatives because they often find themselves with a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. And yes, if you are extremely in demand, you can walk down the street and say, sorry, Disney, I'm going to Netflix. That does still exist. And we are coming out of a peak TV environment where there were 600 shows and lots of competition for those shows. But when the deal-making happens, it is often a very difficult situation for this talent community. And you write in this piece, and you've written elsewhere, that that is a direct result of the consolidation of this industry. And I want you to explain why that is. So the basic premise of what I do, I'm a, I do deal with monopoly power and a, a certain area of law called antitrust, is to try to uh, promote good business, so commerce. And historically, when you go back a couple hundred years, there are a couple of enemies of commerce and liberty, and a core one is private monopoly. And so we had a, a series of laws that were designed to restrain private monopoly and make sure that we had open and fair markets where people could buy and sell uh, products, goods, services, art, labor, and without, you know, based on the quality of what they were doing and not based purely on bargaining leverage. Now in Hollywood, which is really a function, it's a, it was a healthy, high, like profitable industry that made art that people loved. The laws that were designed to structure these open markets kept the studios apart from each other in terms of being rivals. You had a number of different studios and they also kept those studios from controlling distribution. And that happened in two main ways. One of them was the Paramount Decrees, which were an antitrust case in the 1930s and 40s that said that movie studios couldn't control theater chains and vice versa. And then there was the financial syndication rules and primetime rules in 1970 that basically did something similar to TV. So the networks couldn't also own and control the syndicated content. And that meant that there were markets and you could sell into those markets. And if you wanted to sell a show to NBC and they didn't want it, you'd go to ABC and NBC wouldn't privilege their own content because they weren't allowed to do that. And the same thing was true on the movie theater side. And this had a number of impacts. It freed up talent 
to be creative and to make money when they, their stuff was good and not make money when their stuff was bad. But it also made sure that the audience had some control over what was made because they could buy tickets and watch shows if they liked it. And then they would buy tickets to other stuff if they didn't like what was on. And what has happened since we've gotten rid of those laws, and those laws were really sort of removed and then subsequently weakened in the 1990s and 2000s, is that the whole ecosystem of Hollywood has reconsolidated like the studio system prior to 1948, although more extreme because you also have TV involved, and uh, makes the talent, they, they don't have a lot of leverage, but it's also destroyed that link to the audience. And so the stuff that Hollywood puts out is increasingly stuff that people don't want to watch or that people have a hard time, like, you know, that, that the audiences are not as connected to the content that's coming out of Hollywood. And I, I suspect that this is related to the consolidation and the essentially the guesswork that a small group of people are engaged in at the at the sort of studio streamers, as opposed to what used to happen, which is that you just you tested your stuff in markets and it worked or it didn't, and that's how the actual um, creative process worked. But the market still exists for quality or at least popularity. I mean, if you have a show that is popular, it doesn't matter who owns it from the audience perspective. We're talking about the monetization. How does the monetization trickle down to the quality and the stuff that's getting made? Because it's still, if you're Netflix, you want to have a great show regardless, right? Well, maybe. Like, so in the 1980s, right, if you greenlit, like, Back to the Future, right, you had a, that sold tickets in theaters, and then there were a series of secondary markets, VHR sure. and... Yeah, home video, all the waterfall, yes. And those were markets where people paid money and said, I want to watch this movie and I'm going to buy it in these different ways or secondary distributors would buy it. They would pay money for it. And then they wouldn't buy something else because they didn't want to buy that other thing. And that was a very direct feedback mechanism. If you release that kind of movie today, there's no profit on any particular piece of content. What The way that Netflix gets money is they have subscriptions every month and they don't really know if people are actually paying for any individual piece of content. Right. They have engagement metrics and they know whether people watch it or like it. And they can see if someone signs up for Netflix and the first thing they watch is the modern equivalent of Back to the Future, then that is attributed as content that is moving the needle for Netflix. But we don't actually know. You're right. And the bargain at the heart of Hollywood has always been some level. You put out content, that content makes money. And then you share the profit among the people that financed and created that content, directors and writers and producers. Right, the back-end system. The back-end system having gone away, and we've talked about that on the show before, the fact that now, you know, if you are paid up front, you have less incentive to make it great because you don't share in that greatness. You don't share in the profits from that. I think the other dynamic here, and this goes back to the 1990s, is, you know, the creation of the multiplex theaters, which was sort of like a junk bond phenomenon, but also a <laughs> decline of, of antitrust. You know, what when I, you compare something like Back to the Future, which was, um, you know, had ran all summer, right, and made, you know, $10 million every weekend. Uh, and there was a word of mouth element to it. And the reason that, that it worked that way is because the ownership of the theaters was pretty decentralized. And so theater owners would say, oh, that seems to be working. That movie seems to be selling. I'll put it in my theater. And then people in that, that area would see it. 
and then it would go to other things. And that's why you had the time to, uh, to have word of mouth. And what ended up happening in the 1990s and 2000s is when you had the creation of three or four giant theater chains, that's when you started to see, you know, the rise of the, um, the dominance of sure. and tentpole movies, because you had to release it all on three or 4,000 theaters at once. And so it was all, you know, opening weekend. And that has kind of created an oligopoly of content and the streaming just kind of builds on, on top of that. So that's like where, where you've seen the, the, a lot of the kind of creativity is coming at the edges and those edges sort of don't exist anymore. And it's getting worse because the theaters will increasingly not take chances on that edge content because they need all their theaters to show Spider-Man because that's where the money is. And I get that. You cite an interesting example of the benefits of antitrust law. And it's what happened in the UK in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And if you are a student of the industry, you know that that was an especially fertile time for unscripted shows coming out of the UK. Everything from Survivor to American Idol, first called Pop Idol, to X Factor, to Big Brother. And you say that is a direct result of regulation in the UK. How so? In the UK, there is a bargaining code that was essentially implemented by the government called Terms of Trade, which was sort of similar to financial syndication rules, uh, or a, it's a vertical separation. And what it says is that if you're a, an independent producer, you have rights when you're selling to the dominant TV channels, like the, you know, the BBC and ITV. And um, those channels have to buy 25, 25% of their content from independent producers. And then those independent producers get to keep the IP that they developed. And if you contrast that with the US, as you noted, it's take it or leave it. And they basically make the um, production companies, they are like Uber drivers or chicken farmers or things you've seen in other areas of the economy. They effectively just get a fee to do what they do. They don't really own any of the IP anymore. So in, in the UK, the effect of the terms of trade was this dramatic increase in the number of independent producers and then also an increase of exports of these shows. And it was because the independent production companies had an incentive to produce great stuff and they had a market in which to do that. And they sold into these dominant TV channels. They didn't like the terms of trade, but they had to adhere to it. And then the shows that did well, they could export those shows because it was good content. Whereas in the US, the production companies that often did a lot of the great creative work can't do that anymore. A lot of them have died. And so you've killed that whole ecosystem of creativity. And ultimately... It's not like a lot of people think when they're dealing with monopoly power, they're like, okay, this is really a problem because these monopolists are so greedy and they're making so much money. But ultimately, that's not the the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is they're actually destroying the industry itself. So it's, you know, the streaming is not a good business model. So the monopolies are are not doing particularly well right now. Right. Well, we'll get to that because I I, I do want to explore how this is trickling down to streaming. But just on this question of incentives, if you are an unscripted producer in the U.S. these days, you know when you're taking out a project that whoever you sell it to is going to own it. Right. And that does trickle down to the creative incentives here. 
because you're less likely to put the money into making something great. You're less likely to do that development deal with someone who is a proven hit maker because you know that the upside is limited. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument and it manifested in the early 2000s with these reality shows from the UK. Why did that slow down? Why don't we see as much of that out of the UK? Did they change the law or no? Uh, no, the terms of trade are still are still there. I don't know. I mean, I'm I, you know they the the export numbers are still really high, so they're yeah, they're- that's true. And maybe it was just that, you know this was a kind of new genre. They had a lot of runway to come up with these hits like Millionaire and others that uh, kind of American audiences and around the world had not seen before. It could also be that the streamers here are bargaining more. You know, there's been consolidation here in right. since you know the terms of trade were created in the early. I guess the early 2000s, late 1990s, the bargaining started then. And consolidation, it kind of got supercharged with the Comcast-NBC merger, which was sort of like, okay, we're going to vertically integrate now. And then Netflix starts producing original content because they know that their content is about to get cut off because uh, they were mostly a distributor. Sure, yeah. And you saw the, the, a lot more consolidation in the 2010s. So maybe there's just more bargaining. Uh, they're just more aggressive about bargaining. Well, they're global. And now if you are, if you create a show for Netflix, there is no market around the world because it's global and they own it everywhere. You create Love is Blind, you create one of these other things. It's a Netflix, Netflix captures all of that value. And that's what I want to get into with the streamers because arguably the history of streaming has been as a disruptor. There was a so-called oligopoly of studios that had been around a hundred years and due to the high cost of distribution around the world, the studios were able to fend off a lot of interlopers that could not afford to compete and did not have the libraries that funded new production that enabled them to be the six major studios that hoarded all the best content. Netflix and others come in, they're disruptors, and now we have a completely disrupted market. Why is that bad from an antitrust perspective? The argument might go, shouldn't people like you be cheering Netflix? I would challenge the the historical premise of what you're saying. Like one way to put it is you could say they warded off competitors with just lots of capital and, and a library. Another way of saying it is they accepted different creators and cut different deals. And so they the way this, their strength was actually changing and absorbing kind of the new creative flows, like New Hollywood in the 60s that was a result of the Paramount decrees. And then, you know, that took down the studio system and they changed the way that they did business. They absorbed new creators and took them in and brought them into the system. And that refreshed and revitalized the system. So technically, yes, of course, it's the same studios, but the studio system fell apart and the studios operated differently and they allowed different that you know, different creators had leverage to come in and produce different kinds of content. So that's kind of yeah, what I Pixar disrupted Disney and then Disney bought Pixar. Right. I mean, so so I think if you look at like one of the big changes was Disney bought ABC. And that's because the financial syndication rules came down. And Disney's like, all right, we're going to start getting into distribution. And that changed the nature of what Disney was. Disney had been mostly a studio as well as a, you know, had theme parks. And then it moved into distribution. And now it still has those businesses, but it's also a giant distributor. And it also bought up a bunch of IP. So one of the terms I really like is Imperial Disney. It's like, it's not the same Disney as it used to be. 
Bob Iger doesn't wear ties that have like Mickey Mouse on them. Like that's what it used to be. It's like a it's a different kind of company. It's a different kind of. Oh, yeah. I mean, the profits from ESPN alone is what fueled that buying binge in the 2000s and 2010. They bought Marvel and Pixar and Star Wars and all these other things because they were high flying off of the ESPN profits. Well, and also because Bob Iger understood that the legal framework had changed and that it was about consolidating power as opposed to creating great art. They, they call it scale. The term they prefer is scale. Well, right. I mean, scale, right? And and art doesn't scale. Well, you clearly did not see Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which is the 30th Marvel movie. So that art has scaled. Well, no, but I mean, the, the you know what I mean? Like, like I, I get it. I get it's it. It's true. It's true that like, I look, I really like Marvel movies. I like Star Wars movies. They're really fun. But like, the point is, you need that level of scale is really is really helpful. But the next generation of creative stuff, right? Marvel was weird in you know, the 1980s or, you know, like, you or, or you know, Star Wars was a very strange idea before it came out. Like st- science fiction, these things were, were like, they were sort of strange. Now they are like very mainstream and, and that's what Hollywood is. But where's the next, we don't, we clearly don't have a replacement for that stuff. There's no creative refreshment. No, they're remaking the hits. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay. Anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at Ugg.com. There are other companies out there that are doing interesting things. And arguably, the streaming universe has provided more platforms for that kind of content, not fewer, and has opened up the avenue for interesting creators to come out of nowhere. How, how do you respond to that? Okay, so there's there are a lot of analogies to this problem. Um, peak TV is is basically what happened, right? So in the kind of 2000, early 2000 and teens, there was this, there was sort of a land grab where people were like, okay, we can monopolize, right? If we get a lot of subscribers, for some reason, they're going to find it hard to change subscription services. That was one of the assumptions. And we'll have market power. And the way that we can get lots of subscribers is we will spend a lot of money on content and we'll hire everybody and every... Um, overpay. Overpay for market share. And this, you saw this in the 1840s with railroads. You saw this in the 1980s with airlines. You saw this, you know, you saw it in the dot-com boom in the 1990s. It's just like, let's buy market share. Yeah. Uber and Lyft. Uber and Lyft, right? Like, un, the, it should not cost... to go all the way across LA. But for a period, it did. 
And so the, one of the things to understand about what's going on in Hollywood is that it is actually part of a larger set of intellectual trends. And now, and the, the movement I'm a part of, which is movement on the right and the left, are, are people who are saying, look, we are destroying American business and uh, the ability to, to do work and benefit from that work. And we need to rethink the way that we have allowed these autocrats, these basic like corporate communists to run our society and break them up so we can have markets and capitalism again. And that, so that there's, a, there's a broader dynamic here. What's interesting, I think, is that you in your piece highlighted that streaming has not been a good business for pretty much anyone except Netflix, which, as you noted, spent a lot of money to acquire market share and is now the market leader and is now making money on that business. But everybody else is struggling. And the answer, at least in the Hollywood and financial communities, has been, we need to consolidate further. These companies, there should not be Peacock and Paramount Plus and Hulu and all of these other companies trying to make a go of streaming. Consolidate it all up. There'll be three or four global streaming services. Then we can make money on this. And obviously, you have a different perspective. So their, their basic view was, okay, if we can get people to subscribe, that, that's some market power. And it turns out it's not. When you have five or six streaming companies, people can switch and do switch. And so one of the things that the, um, the investors behind these streaming companies think is, well, well, we'll just further consolidate, right? If we just have two or three uh, companies, then people really won't have a choice. And then we can just raise prices and, and there we go. We're all, we're all good. And first of all, that's probably not, they're probably going to run into antitrust challenges. There was an antitrust challenge of a similar market where Penguin Random House tried to buy Simon & Schuster and the antitrust didn't stop that because it was bad for the creatives. The authors couldn't get as much when they were, when they were selling their book proposals, analogous to Hollywood. But even if they could, what that would end up doing is it would end up leading to a situation where the streamers would just outsource. Uh, they would just like move Hollywood out of the US almost entirely because it doesn't matter to them where they produce things. And they, when they have market power over the American consumer, then they will just put in front of American consumers whatever is cheapest for them to make. And there will be no alternatives because there are no more markets. So that's the end game if consolidation is what they want to do. They might make money at that, but there won't be a movie industry or a TV industry in the US or that will be much, much weaker than it is today. It'll just be maybe a little bit of creative production here or there. Or they buy it all up. And I mean, we see this now. There was some reporting last night about how HBO is thinking about licensing shows to Netflix, which would be a complete 180 from the HBO model of largely keeping all that stuff in its own ecosystem. And the reason is they need money to compete with Netflix. And Netflix has known this from the beginning. They've said, Ted Sarando said, we want to become HBO before HBO becomes us because then they will be so desperate for money, they will have to license us their shows. And that is a further consolidation of content and a lack of differentiation amongst them. And it, it's not a good sign for the future of the Max service if they do that. I think a, a different approach that mm -hmm. will preserve and expand 
that would grow Hollywood again would be to do what we did in the 1948, to do what we did in 1970, to do what we've done periodically in different industries in American history. We broke up AT&T multiple times. That created a lot of like innovation. It's just do that again. So that's what you want. You want to yeah. break it up. You want the FinCEN rules to come back. Right. You want the Paramount decrees to come back. If you give creative people some leverage, then they will create. That's just very basic. Right. And, and if you don't give them any leverage and you just put the people who are on Wall Street, you give them all of the leverage. What they want is certain returns, just the certitude of easy returns. And you always need some sort. Obviously, you need financing. But if there are no markets, it's not capitalism. So what's the upshot here? Is there anyone in the government who is interested in this and who will actually do something? What's going on? You mentioned before we talked about some new regulation guidelines that are going to come out. So what, where is this headed right now? Yeah. So the answer is there's a lot of interest in government uh, in general about like changing the way we do political economy that we've done in the last 30 or 40 years. I think if people in Hollywood started to ask and say, hey, look, we need to really save this industry and we need to recreate markets, it would be very powerful. Now, the thing that you mentioned, which I'll go into a little bit, is that at the end of this month or next month, the antitrust agencies, right? So the government agencies that are supposed to deal with like corporate mergers and things like that are going to release new guidelines on how they handle mergers. So that's how they basically handle um, whether corporations can combine with one another. And when they haven't released new guidelines since 2010, and essentially like what they're probably going to do is they're probably going to say there, there are too many mergers of big companies. Now, when they do that, they're going to open a, what is a public comment period, which means that anyone from the public is able to just go on the internet, look at the merger guidelines and say, Hey, I think that there's too much consolidation in Hollywood because sure. I had this experience. Will they actually listen to that? Yes. They've made it very clear. that so last time they did this in 2010, they released merger guidelines and there were 32 comments, all from lobbyists. So this last time they said that, you know, there's a long bureaucratic process. So about a year, year and a half ago, they said, okay, we're going to do new merger guidelines. Get, tell us what you think. And there were 5,000 comments that came in from people saying, here's what I think. I don't like mergers or I like mergers or here's, here's an issue in the doctors weighed in and stuff like that. When they come out with these new guideline draft, it's going to be a draft, right? There's going to be another opportunity to comment and there will be thousands of people who are going to weigh in. So there's 12,000 members of the writer's guild. If each one of them left a comment for the FTC, that would be meaningful. Yes, it would. Because the, you know, a lot of economists are going to weigh in and lawyers and lobbyists and things like that. And when you put out a, a document like this, it's essentially for judges, right? You're telling judges, this is what's going on in the economy. And you have to tether your claims to real evidence. And people saying, yeah, I had this experience where I used to go to a doctor, it was bought up by a private equity clinic, and now I'm, you know, they raised fees or something like that, or a doctor saying, I can't prescribe my patients because, you know, of something that happened with involving a merger. Like that is real evidence. Listen, any representative in Hollywood can say, listen, I went to, to Hulu to make a deal. And they said, here is our new Disney form. We do not deviate from this form. If you do a deal with any Disney entity, you will take this or leave it. Thank you very much. That's good evidence. It's re it is good evidence. If they get a few comments saying that, then maybe they'll open an investigation, right? I mean, that the, the, that's like 
that's the thing is that like they don't I mean they, they sit in DC they need to hear from people about what is going on in the economy and what is going on in business if they don't hear from you then they will only hear from the economists who will say I mean this is the, the economists will say oh vertical integration is efficient right it's efficient for Disney to own all of the production and all of the distribution because then they don't have to have all of these transaction costs and blah 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 and if no one is saying actually I don't have any leverage so I can't make anything cool and make any money in this business, then the only people that they will hear are the economists. And frankly, the only people they've heard for the last 40 years are the economists. Right. Well, people like you, hopefully. And But you know what? Screen Actors Guild, right. Writers Guild, Directors Guild, talent Ag- the Association of Talent Agents. There are groups out there that you know should be listening to this and perhaps will be motivated there. All right. We're out of time. But thank you, Matt, for coming on. Appreciate your insights. It's really fascinating. Your piece, uh, which everyone should read, is called Time to Break Up Hollywood. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited? An honest-to-God, R-rated, star-driven comedy is coming to theaters this weekend and No Hard Feelings with Jennifer Lawrence. This is a huge moment for, for all of us. It is a huge moment, like moon landing and then this. Because if this is a massive flop, I'm pretty scared for the next time a studio takes this risk again. The budget on this thing, according to Sony, is $45 million, which is not cheap. No. There is a lot riding on this movie because, as we have discussed in this show, the thinking in Hollywood is that comedies are no longer for theaters. They are mostly for streaming. Which means they disappear into the ether and they don't resonate and become classics. Exactly. There's so many comedies now, like Confess Fletch, or that went straight to streaming because they didn't think it would do well. Or even the new Please Don't Destroy movie with the SNL kids. That's going to go straight to streaming. Like, they're just not taking risks anymore. Yeah, and they Universal tried last summer with Bros, and that failed. So I think everyone's a little gun-shy. But what if, if there's no comedies in theaters, what are they going to talk about on the rewatchables in 20 years? And I know Bill wants that podcast to still be going in 20 years, so we need to find something. It definitely does. We're going to be talking about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy We'll be doing episodes of of Baywatch or Miami Vice. Exactly. Uh, So the tracking on No Hard Feelings is a paltry $11 million, according to most of the services that I have looked at, which is a pretty low number compared even to right before the pandemic you look at something like good boys which has the same director as no hard feelings that opened to 21 million you look at something like blockers the year before 2018 that opened to 20 million 21 million go back five years something like game night which was another r-rated star-driven comedy rich mcadams and jason bateman that opened to 17 million and go back 10 years something like identity thief with bateman and melissa mccarthy that opened to 36 million. So the comedy expectations have just gone directly to the toilet. And my prediction is I think I'm going to take the over here. I think this is going to slightly overperform mid teens, and everyone will kind of be left to throw their arms up and say, okay, is this a hit? Is this not a hit? We don't know. I don't feel confident that it'll break 11 million this weekend, but I, no? I do feel like. You're taking the under? This all comes down to Jennifer Lawrence. Remember that that national research group study that you did yeah. a few months ago yeah. on your newsletter? Jennifer Lawrence was 25th overall, and she was second among people under 40. I think that's a huge deal. She is pretty much 
the perfect person you could choose for this that is under 40 years old. Yeah, the reviews have been good. The reviews, you know, from yeah. uh, the premiere were pretty good. I just don't know if people are going to feel the urgency to see it and if they'll think, hey, I'll wait to hear if somebody says it's good or I'll wait for it to go to streaming because a movie like Game Night, which only made 17 to open, it had legs because it had word of mouth. I think that could happen with this movie. I'm not sure it's going to have a huge opening weekend. Maybe Jennifer Lawrence will bring people. That's all it would have to be. It all comes down to Jennifer Lawrence. If Jennifer Lawrence can't open a comedy to more than $11 million, like, what are we doing? Like, what, what is the movie business for stars <laughs> if she can't open this movie? Like, that's depressing. I'm keeping my expectations low because I'm, I'm ready to, I don't want to be hurt again. I know. You and I have not seen it. No. Uh, we, will, we will reserve judgment on the movie, but the reviews are decent. I just, I got to believe. And I've been burned, taking the over. In the last couple of weeks, but uh, we we're gonna go with the over on this one. Come on, twelve million! It can't get to twelve million. I know, Jesus Christ! Like, there's got to be enough pervs out there that just want to hear her swearing for it to get above twelve million. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest Matt Stoller. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck. I want to thank our editor Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com.